0: Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 28 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by legacy specialist R&Q. If not already, then please do make sure you are subscribed on your podcast platform of choice. Apple Podcasts, Spotify are two of the most commonly used apps while Castbox appears to be the platform of choice for most Android users. Just search for Global Captive Podcast and hit subscribe. Well, this week our captive owner interview will be with Julie Bordeaux, president of PCH Mutual Insurance Company, a risk retention group. While in the second half we will hear from the seeker next gen committee about their program. But joining me throughout this episode is a longtime friend of mine and a friend of the podcast for 2020, Karen Jenner of the TMF Group. Karen, welcome to the pod. Good morning, Richard. So Karen, we're four weeks into lockdown in the UK, I think uh, now. How how have you been and, and what is your work from home isolation station like?
1: Well, I work from home a couple of days a week ordinarily, sort of travel and meetings permitting. So it's it's not unfamiliar territory like most big companies, TMF are well set up for it. You know, the virtual meetings, it's really sort of business as usual. However, start adding in homeschooling the kids adds a new challenge.
0: Well, I know you've, I know you've just stolen one of the kids' laptops, haven't you, to do this? So uh, that's obviously suspended for a bit. Uh, yes,
1: absolutely. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, TMF, TMF restrictions on the website possibly yeah, limiting. But, um, I mean, I just feel for those that live in flats and live on their own, you know. I'm actually yeah. quite comfortable at home. I mean, interestingly at work, we've sort of built in a bit of social interaction. So we've got some virtual coffee breaks and we've got some regular sort of quiz nights going on.
0: Yeah, yeah, I am planning at the moment uh, a potential captive trivia night. So uh, so watch out for that one. But uh, yeah, it sounds like I think those social breaks are, are very important and good to see companies doing that. Now you've joined TMF over a year ago now, Karen. So for those of our listeners who might not have come across TMF before. Could you just tell us a little bit about the background of of the firm and and your role there?
1: I joined back in March last year, so it's just over a year. I'm actually loving being back in a a big company. TMF itself is in the business of supporting businesses expand and operate in new jurisdictions around the world, i.e. sort of making sure they're properly set up and compliant with local and international regulations. And that covers an entire... um, Suite of services in which sits accounting and tax, which is where IPT sits. Interestingly, learning about the different elements of the business, I think for captives, there's there's more cohesive offerings that TMF can that can provide, which is something we're going to look at in the future. But my role itself is within the IPT team. There are around 20 of us based down in Brighton, and we've got a further extra 50 plus. IPT specialists based around the network. We've got offices in 80 territories around the world. We've got more than 80 offices. Um, So my particular role is sort of working closely with the insurance industry to make sure that our products and services meet what's required and sort of to help grow the IPT portfolio, which stretches across outsourced compliance services, consultancy services, as well as software solutions, and also sort of a little bit of involvement in supporting client relationships.
0: So um, just for anyone who, who's not sure, uh, IPT obviously is insurance premium tax. I'm sure most listeners probably knew that, but just in case, always nice to explain the acronyms. Uh, but Karen, although, as you mentioned, a lot of your work at TMF is on IPT and, and the tax side of things, your background is actually in in the insurance market, isn't it? Having previously worked at AIG, so I presume you bring that insurance background knowledge to to the role.
1: Yes, I I would never dream of professing to be a tax expert. My colleagues would be <laughs> shuddering at that thought. Um, no, so my insurance background really um, more years than I'd like to count is is in large global insurance programs and captives. Um, and I suppose having had that background, I've kind of experienced. Frustrations around understanding the compliance charges on multinational programs, making sure they 're properly applied, and I think this this provides i 'm told it 's helpful in interpreting some of the issues to our tax gurus and also making sure you know that the products we have are easily used by the non tax experts you know a lot of our products are aimed to be used by underwriters and sort of policy administration teams rather than tax managers per se
0: so what areas then are you and TMF particularly focusing on to to support captives in in the immediate short term?
1: Working with the existing captive clients we have, we know that our global rate tables are particularly useful. Uh, Even where captives aren't always writing direct, they tend to cover many countries across the globe in their programmes. And it's good to understand the total cost of tax above and beyond any premiums that are impacting the parent company. And it also helps them be mindful of not not only the captives' responsibilities for paying taxes, but sometimes where responsibilities falls to the local insured for fulfilling tax obligations. So access to the knowledge of the tax rates and also the various legislation around admitted and not admitted insurance in their programmes can help them determine their programme structure, i.e. what they write direct versus what's fronted, where they need a local broker.
0: So, yeah, the rate rate table sound uh, really, really helpful, Karen. And and what about uh, kind of broader compliance? Are there other
1: compliance issues as well? I mean, TMF offers sort of a standard compliance solution for most particularly focused on captives writing direct business, either on a freedom of services basis across the EU or for non-omitted insurance, sort of helping them calculate, report and settle the taxes on insurance premiums in every territory. And also maybe supporting the captive or, or again, I mentioned the local policyholders' obligations. We might be able to support them with non-omitted placements. Um, last year, we also launched a consultancy practice. Again, it's a caveat, consultancy is to provide specific uh, support to IPT compliance issues. So that could be product policy reviews, IPT process health checks, approaching the tax authorities for specific guidance. Interestingly, working with the the local net office network has, has, has been a bit of an eye-opener for me because it's shown that we've got quite a lot of support in some issues in far-reaching territories as well as the more obvious territories where captives often seek advice.
0: So obviously the lockdown is having a huge impact on all parts of society and, and business and of course governmental and, and tax authority businesses not immune to that at all. So how are tax authorities dealing with the lockdown and how, how is it impacting kind of tax compliance and administration?
1: Well hopefully I'm not speaking too soon but as I said earlier at TMF we're very much business as usual and our Q1 end of quarter filings touch wood <laughs> so far seem to have been ineffective. Um, but what is interesting to see is is the behaviours of the tax authorities. Many tax authorities are fairly bureaucratic and traditional in their processes. But we, I mean, we, at the moment we're onboarding a, a French client and what we're seeing is a sort of softening in some of the particularly stringent requirements in some of the territories. So we're seeing wet signatures no longer being required. They'll accept scan, copy documents, for registration. We're seeing postponements of notarisations. Uh, of legal documents and also electronic notarizations. Some offices we are seeing that local are closed because of local staffing issues, but we're being told that there won't really be any consequences or penalties for late registrations due to that. I mean, and I think for the ongoing compliance, you know, IPT is a very small piece of tax in, in most territories in the focus of most territories Um, so we're seeing some relaxed payments and filing deadlines however the insurers processes seem to be fairly robust and we're not really seeing many insurers needing to utilize these softened deadlines yet
0: are we hoping this might be the final the final encouragement for tax authorities to really become digital i know lots of them have talked about wanting to do it some are further down the line in becoming digital than others, but is this going to be just extra encouragement for them to do so?
1: Well, we're hopeful. I mean, we are definitely seeing different approaches, so it could bring us up to a little bit more up to date. Uh, I mean, interestingly enough, we're still seeing there's some delays, isn't there, with um, being able to courier documents, etc., overseas, which um, is is making them look at receiving scanned copy documents definitely
0: okay well uh, more on that a bit later but we are now going to hear from chicago-based julie bordeaux who is president of pch mutual insurance company the risk retention group insures more than 1600 assisted living and personal care homes in the us but julie also runs her own legal services business and began by sharing a bit about her background
2: Actually, people are always shocked when I tell them I started out as a plaintiff litigator. I'm an attorney. I was uh, a member of the plaintiff's bar in the Chicago area for uh, quite a while and then uh, moved into a practice where I served mostly other lawyers and then also businesses. And and that's actually how I got connected uh, with PCH uh, working as outside counsel. But I always say to people, I have a 360 view because I've been on the plaintiff side, I've actually worked with folks on the defence side, i worked from the uh, sense of being an advocate and an advisor to businesses, and now here I am um, uh, in the insurance realm.
0: Fantastic. And I believe you're, you're on the board of uh, NARA, the National Risk Attention Association, and also but also formed an informal RRG leaders group. So can you just tell us a little bit about, about that?
2: I really have enjoyed my time uh, on the board of NARA, and one of the things that has always come through, I chaired the conferences for 2018 and 2019, is that the value proposition to the membership of NARA is not appreciated widely throughout all of the risk retention group industry. And I I think NARA is a great organization, and it's done a number of things to advance RRGs and advocate in the courts, which everyone benefits from, even non-NARA members. But what I also saw in attending the VCIA conference were small uh, groups of other group captive entities that were informally uh, collaborating and meeting. Uh, It was focused kind of geographically. And so I thought, well, we can do anything virtually in terms of touching base, and then a lot of us are attending the same conferences throughout the year, so it would be great to form an informal leaders group, whether it was NARA members or non-NARA members, but folks who are in the position that I'm in, so we can collaborate, strategize, in the times of COVID-19 commiserate uh, about what's happening. And it's been a very helpful and I've really enjoyed that and hope to grow it with as many of my cohorts in the risk retention group space as would like to join us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a great initiative. And uh, I run a similar group in in the UK for Airmic. I, I, I run the captive special interest group we have there. We have some absolutely huge companies and really sophisticated captives that get to meet now on a, on a quarterly basis. And, and they're very just candid. We, we, are, we have done them virtually as well since lockdown came in. And they're just very candid exchange of views and experiences. And I know that the members find it extremely useful. I certainly find it extremely useful to feedback those comments and experiences at Airmic so we can work out how best to serve our members. So I I appreciate the the initiative. So tell us a bit about PCH Mutual Insurance. Then it's a risk retention group, and how your involvement there began and how it's kind of grown over the years.
2: Yeah, I'm really passionate about this work. PCH is a wonderful company. Uh, We don't have the biggest gross written premium, but we've got a pretty big membership. We've got over seventeen hundred and thirty member insureds who serve the long-term care industry. So they are facility owners in the assisted living and uh, residential care space, providing non-medical caregiving to the vulnerable adult population. And as you well know, risk retention groups were created out of the liability uh, insurance crisis in the 1980s. And the Liability Risk Retention Act was really the federal government's way of saying, we've got to figure out how small businesses can still thrive and um, maintain insurance. And so I, I would argue that the system worked and risk retention groups like ours that serve our membership with unique, very directed risk management for them and sometimes generated by them as you know, our board members, um, some of them are member insureds. So they'll drive where we'll do risk management and what's most appropriate Uh, So it's really a wonderful collective. And um, I think that a true mutual insurance company really does ultimately serve its members and serve the backbone of at least the American economy, which are small businesses.
0: Obviously, I presume the coronavirus pandemic, particularly in that sector of uh, assisted living and, and care homes is, is obviously going to be having a huge impact on, on your members right now. But just before we talk a bit more about that, what, what were some of the key priorities for the risk retention group at the start of this year, kind of prior to uh, the, the new normal that we find ourselves
2: in? Prior to that, for PCH specifically, uh, it was really about uh, making sure that we had the most up-to-the-minute risk management. Last year, we revised all of our risk management platform um, that's uh, in on our website and available to everyone. We've also engaged with some insure tech partnerships that we had started with actually back at the end of 2018. And those partnerships are really chugging along quite well. And if you're into the lingo at all of um, tech tech startups, you know, Mm. it's pivoted and iterated, Mm -hmm. and we're really excited because on the enterprise side, we're engaged with an InsureTech partner that has built a very elegant, tailored claims management system with the ultimate goal of generating enough data that it will employ artificial intelligence to do um, early predictive analysis on reserve setting. And as everyone knows in the insurance uh, business, the earlier and more accurately you can predict your reserves, the better off you are going to be when it comes to your bottom line. So that's fantastic. Then we also have CareValidate, which is a company that is involved in solving a huge problem in long-term care. So it's about giving the best care to the residents, which is the ultimate goal of our member insureds, by providing a platform of sensor technology that actually integrates with a smartphone application and gives caregivers up-to-the-minute information, live information with regards to residents on different metrics like respiration, sleep, movement, things that would indicate um, some sort of problem, obviously with the resident and sending those as alerts on on a platform that almost looks like a social feed. But then there's also communication between the caregivers. And then because caregivers and retention of caregivers because it's a low paying job and a very difficult job is part of that very difficult problem in our space ways to engage the caregivers, to give them a way to garner rewards. and sometimes uh, perhaps even um, you know monetary re- rewards or thanks from the family, different things that really engage the caregivers in their work. And being celebrated for their work, so we've got a lot of exciting things going on at PCH.
0: One of the main parts of the kind of the, the, our world before the insurance world before the pandemic was the hardening market. How, how have how had that market been impacting kind of RRGs with uh, PCH specifically, but RRGs more broadly? Do you think
2: uh, the hardening market obviously made us look at uh, you know our, our rates and where we could grow the premium? but also continuing to serve our members and continuing our rigorous underwriting. Uh, Because in particular in long-term care, there definitely were other providers leaving the market. And um, so we looked at... Pricing, um, we certainly did not want to get to um, the point where we were t- taking the pricing uh, up to the to the absolute top of the competitive level. We were very deliberate about um, looking at pricing, and we uh, we did have a, a rate increase, but we also are always continuing to increase the value proposition for our members, and so in any ways that we can do that um, in terms of, you know, smaller coverages, different things that help them specific to their particular business. As far as the industry overall, I, I spoke about this recently at a webinar. I think we also always need to be looking at where our member insureds feel vulnerable. And of course, the pandemic has really exposed vulnerabilities in every aspect of people's Lives uh, and the economy, and so with the hardening market, the the idea that yeah maybe your rates are going to go up, but we're going to increase the value proposition. That may be in some of those supplemental coverages. You know, within our program, we have an evacuation coverage, and that serves both our members and the company because we want our insureds to feel very free to evacuate. That 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 kind of event will be covered. But at the same time, we know that if they properly evacuate, they're absolutely avoiding a potentially catastrophic claim situation if they don't evacuate. So looking on a granular level at what your members need and how you can provide that and Increase the value proposition as the market hardens and it gets more expensive to insure.
0: You touched on some specifics regarding the the pandemic. I mean, what are you? I presume there must be the need for some close contact with your members in this in this current situation with the kind of work that they're engaging. So, what what where is the RRG able to support members directly in relation to the coronavirus pandemic?
2: Yes, and we got on that right away. So our mantra with regard to our members and the pandemic was to support and provide trusted resources. So we immediately engaged in a communication system with our members that we were providing them with links to the trusted sources, the CDC, the WHO, encouraging them um, to engage with their state regulatory bodies. Because as we all know, the the information and the procedures and protocols were evolving really on sometimes an hourly, if not a daily basis. Mm. So our idea was to engage, um, support and provide resources. We also have a a member hotline. So our members can contact a lawyer in their jurisdiction by calling the hotline. They can get connected to a, a lawyer in their jurisdiction. It's free of charge. It's anonymous. Um, we don't get the names of those member insureds, um, but we added an attorney who was keeping up on the up to minute, up to the minute with the pandemic information. And so we added a specific COVID-19 resource on our hotline for our members. And then also we've engaged with providing information um, through our alerts uh, with regard to just some of the self-care stuff and the recommendations and strategies for how the caregivers can you know make it through the long haul and giving them links to different resources for meditation and different things that allow them to take a moment in their day and kind of you know refresh themselves so those are the some of the things that we've been doing
0: Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes Richard it is you don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well you can execute a lost portfolio transfer which is a reinsurance structure undertake an insurance business transfer enter into novation, or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And RNQ has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles, in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Well, now we're going to hear from three leading members of Seeker's Next Gen Committee, Erin Hackett from Crow, Joe McDonald of the South Carolina Department of Insurance, and Adam Mahalik from Highland. We had planned to record this together at the Seeker conference in March, but we rearranged to do it as a conference call. And Erin began by explaining why she thought establishing the Next Gen program was a good idea.
3: In recent years, there has been a growing discussion among captive insurance industry leaders and within associations to try to find ways to attract new or young professionals into the industry. And establishing the Seeker Next Gen Task Force, to my knowledge, was really the first time some of those conversations were brought to a group of younger and newer professionals already in the industry to brainstorm and come up with recommendations for how to accomplish that goal. So... You know, along with allowing the task force to think about other goals, such as what we believe we need to further our own careers. So in my opinion, setting up the NextGen Task Force was a great idea because now you have individuals who are close to the issue, thinking about and brainstorming ideas that may not have been evident to someone who's more established in the industry. You know, this coupled with the amazing support from Dan Towell, Sika's president, Who really challenged us from the first call to not limit ourselves when brainstorming goals and recommendations has has been really empowering and this has allowed the task force to come up with a full well-rounded list of initiatives to bring to the seeker board for their review.
0: In terms of those lists of initiatives that you're kind of asking the seeker board to review, Adam first perhaps, what are some of the what are some of those aims and objectives do you think um, of the task force?
4: We've been looking at putting a host of recommendations to the board and, and then rolling them out over time and we've Really kind of bifurcated them two separate ways in, in both short term and long term goals. So, what do you think we could implement rather quickly to to roll this out and, and bring it to the masses and regu- relatively short term, and then what are some of the the long term goals that we could focus on? Obviously, building a network of young professionals and then assisting associations, individual companies, and, and individual professionals, uh, both young and age and new to the industry in the long term. So. Some of the ones that, that I've been working on directly, um, you know, the creation of a, a young professionals uh, industry at various conferences or, or, or industry events, you know, kind of leveraging how other committees and uh, association groups have handled themselves at conferences or events where it's simply getting together with a group of like-minded peers and, and having anything from a, a social hour to a targeted you know mini sessions of, of bringing in speakers or talking about anything from you know how to present yourself at a, a, a speaking at a conference or how to network it's been something that we've focused on a lot in the beginning phases is how do we build out this network and then once we have an interest from a good amount of people how do we ensure that we bring them together at least at routine touch points throughout the year to facilitate this networking and thought sharing and really this this feeling of togetherness of of young and new professionals to the captive industry. So I think that's probably one of the more short term goals uh, that we can roll out and and look forward to. And then one of the long term goals I just wanted to mention was working with you know established institutions, companies, individuals interested in fostering young and new talent to the industry that, that Aaron mentioned earlier. So whether that's, you know, helping facilitate internships or Uh, mentorship, partnerships uh, across companies, but looking to ensure that this just isn't a one or two year engagement and it's a short term committee and uh, it kind of fades into the background, but that it's a continual improvement and and betterment of the industry as a whole.
5: The real goal here uh, was to create awareness for young professionals of of the captive industry uh, and those who may be seeking a career uh, and uncertain of how to develop their talents and, and really where to focus their energy. Uh, and further to to, to network uh, with existing young professionals who are are in the industry and to exhibit the class and, and, and caliber of the many talented young individuals that are, are eager to advance in their careers and really help make our industry shine. Uh, so that I think is the the, the overarching uh, objective here and and some of the the further aims that uh, that we have and that we've outlined uh, there's there's a structured marketing and communications plan to Uh, to raise awareness uh, of our endeavors. There's discussions about uh, how to develop a rotational internship program for young professionals or interns uh, to experience various industry roles. Um, and there's uh, there's opportunities we've created for publication efforts. Uh, so interested individuals have you know, uh, ample opportunities to publish articles, papers and other content. So there's there's a, a lot of objectives that we have and really just uh, glad to um, help, you know, ad- advance the, the overarching uh, philosophy of, hey, how do we get young professionals involved in, in the industry and, and really exhibit and showcase the level of talent that we already have in our industry?
0: Yeah, Joe, I think one of the bits you touched upon there was kind of a different roles. And I think what's really great just looking even at the committee uh, list of members on the website is that you do all come from quite different parts of the sector. And it's something that I've talked a lot about previously in, in Captive Review and on the podcast is that because of a niche nature of captive insurance, you have lots and lots of different types of service providers. And they might be big, big companies, but often you're just in small teams of the captive specialists at those companies. So I think that's a really great way, not just in terms of the younger generation but in terms of having that breadth of knowledge uh, across different sectors that to, to be brought together uh, in, in the captive market I think that's very really beneficial. Yeah, just to
4: kind of further drive that point one of the another initiatives hitting right on that is is partnering with you know universities or or you know trade schools that we have individuals coming into this industry from. You know, when you look across the board you see very few Four year universities or or even grad programs that have insurance or risk management specializations. Some of them do, and and those are incredibly talented programs. But by and large, those individuals that are attracted to this industry are coming with degrees in accounting or legal or education or general business. So, uh, one of the more longer term goals of, of the committee, and we're still in the process of evaluating this, is how can we Um, how can we interface with students across spectrums when they're starting to evaluate career options? Because it doesn't mean that um, if you're getting a degree in accounting, you have to be uh, an accountant or an auditor. You, You can translate that into working in the captive industry as well. So trying to highlight the industry to individuals evaluating career options instead of it being what it has tended to be historically is a, is a second career option for a lot of individuals.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. You often hear about people almost falling into the captive insurance industry uh, by accident and I'm, and being pretty pleased about it when once they learn about the industry. But often it is kind of an accidental career move and a deliberate one. Well, on, on that topic then, Aaron, what, w- what would be your main selling point to someone uh, considering Entering the the captain insurance market, whether it's at that kind of graduate level or, or a little bit later on in their career.
3: Yeah, you know, kind of continuing on with what we were just talking about with the amazing people in the industry, I would say that is really my main selling point. There are some very talented professionals in this industry, whether they found themselves in the industry by accident or not. And all of those professionals are experienced and willing to have engaging conversations and mentor those who are younger or newer to the industry. So it's pretty rare to find that across an entire industry. And I would say that is my main selling point and, and what I think is so engaging about our industry.
5: Uh, just to re- reiterate what uh, what Aaron has said, I mean, we we really do have a fantastic industry uh, where an individual can can really be creative and engaged and, and, and find professional fulfillment. Uh, and and despite how uh, we may have uh, tripped and stumbled into the industry, uh, there's really so many opportunities uh, again to be engaged and to to work with some. Uh, extremely high-level uh, in- individuals who are who are really brilliant in how they approach uh, risk financing, uh, risk mitigation, risk management, um, and and just the various uh, other professionals that are involved. Uh, in the industry, it's it's really a, a great place to to find a career and to, uh, to to develop professionally. So that's that's my main selling point. I'm I'm uh, continuously humbled by uh, again the caliber of of individuals that I work with, and uh, not only are
4: they engaging,
5: but they also uh, are supportive
4: and, and and really drive me in a lot of ways. I mean, the only thing I'd like to add to that to Joe's comment is is furthering that you know just be open minded about coming into the industry. Um, I think a lot of times when Individuals here that you work in insurance, uh, you get lumped in with, you know, uh, selling home and auto insurance, or someone who calls you to renew uh, every year once. Um, but it's 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 much more in depth, it's much more entrepreneurial, it's much more of a community than that. So uh, you know, give it a chance and come with an open mind, and and, and I would say ten times out of ten, you'll you'll find uh, an element of this industry that, that is attractive to you and that you can really foster and build. Uh, your personal and professional advancement.
0: So one misperception I think I often make Karen is that a lot of what firms such as TMF do overlaps with some of the administration and and compliance services that a fronting company will provide on a captive program. Could you just explain to me what the difference is between uh, kind of the role of a TMF and, and that of a fronting company?
1: Well Actually, we often provide uh, compliance services to some of the fronting insurers too. uh, And quite a few of them use use our rate tables as well. Uh, We work with a lot of larger insurers in the market. And we work alongside, sort of in tandem with fronters on captive programmes. So a captive's reasons for writing direct versus writing on a reinsurance basis via a fronter. A uh, uh, wide and varying. It probably would take us too long to go through right now, but and, and I suppose on a typical global global program, you would see a European captive writing freedom of services business and maybe some admitted insurance where it's obviously legally permissible on a direct basis. Therefore, they'd require all compliance services. Then the fronting insurer would issue the local policies in other territories around the world. Where either non admitted insurance is not permitted um, or the compliance implications of writing direct are more complex or costly, you know, that they might choose to have a local fronted policy in those territories.
0: And so then, how do the costs differ between using the fronting firms and the kind of do it yourself approach?
1: That's kind of how long is a piece of string, really, to be honest. It it depends on so many factors Um, the territory, the basis on which the policy is structured, size of the premium, often non admitted insurance, uh, where the captive would be responsible for settling the taxes themselves in their own compliance, um, it often attracts a higher level of tax. The really obvious one that everyone always talks about is Canada in Alberta, where I think non-admitted insurance rate is 50% of the premium versus a 4% rate on a local admitted policy issued via an authorised broker. So not just those costs, but also the complexities and resources required to do it yourself will make a decision on the programme structure, probably just as much as weighing up not just fronting costs themselves, but obviously fronting insurers often have collateral requirements um, that need to be considered and again a lot depends on the resource and appetite of the captive and and how much work they want to do and how much they want to outsource
0: you mentioned uh, one of those one of those elements which has a big impact is is how the captive program is structured um so let's let's get into a little bit of, of that in a bit more detail so what is the what is the impact on the compliance requirements and the processes regarding um IPT in in terms of the different ways a captive programme can be structured?
1: Well, ultimately, and I suppose the one that attracts the biggest headline, is it impacts the overall cost. Again, as I mentioned, large premiums for territories written on a non non basis could increase the tax costs, Um, but that needs to be weighed up against fronting costs. However, also, the structure can impact who's responsible for settling the taxes. So, varying programme structures can see the responsibilities for discharging liabilities move from it could be the captive or the fronting insurer issuing the policy could be a local broker, it could be a fiscal agent or representative, and in some instances, it could also be the policyholder. And for a captive, obviously, local insureds are within the same ultimate parent group. So the captive needs to be sure uh, that the that the tax team on the ground at the local insured level are sort of fully aware of their responsibilities and liabilities, as well as understanding the process to settle the taxes. So, you know, all these kind of pieces of the puzzle will help them structure the program and decide on the optimal sort of program structure that works for them.
0: That, that's really uh, interesting, Karen. And what we are going to do in, in in a few weeks time as part of TMF's GTP Short is actually going to be exploring that discussion in a lot more detail, isn't it, Karen? We're going to get into a bit about how, how a different uh, captive program structures will impact IPT and, and compliance issues.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and we're, we're hoping to do that as well with a with a captive themselves that can Provide their insight on their own their own experience.
0: And so, just lastly, then on on um on the kind of captives themselves, what is the typical profile or or size of a captive that might need to consider getting help for its um, IPT uh, compliance?
1: Well, at at the moment, captives are a part of our portfolio. We we also work a lot with brokers. Uh, The brokers tend to be interested in our rate tables and our software because it helps them prepare their tax schedules for multinational and multi insurer programs. We also work with large general insurance companies, both in the London market and across Europe. Uh, With the captives, uh, there's a mixture. You know, we work with some that write third party business, which are more akin to sort of a traditional insurance company. And then we work with some of the smaller, more traditional captives that write in the in-house risk of the parent only. Uh, Some of those are self-managed, independent, and others are managed by captive managers and brokers. Great.
0: Well, that is all we have time for this week. So I would just like to say thank you to all of our guests, uh, Julie Bordeaux of PCH Mutual, Erin Hackett, Adam Mahalik, and Joseph McDonald from the Seeker Next Gen Task Force. And of course, you, Karen Jenner, thank you for coming onto the pod.
1: Thank you, Richard.
0: As ever, stay safe, stay healthy, and see you next time, captives.